their immediate goal is to eliminate the conditions of sort of normalized genocide under which Black people in the West uh, under modernity live. That's the immediate demand, okay? And these rebellions represent these moments in which they're able to do that on a limited scale. The, the, these moments where they're able to create breathing room for themselves. These moments where they're able to overthrow the regime of domination. And in those moments, then we can begin to see them narrating the emergence of this new kind of humanism through their practices. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about the politics of health, medicine and the body. In today's episode, we'll be hearing from Arasami Burton, who's going to be talking about the revolutionary prison uprisings of the 1970s. Before we get to that discussion, I just want to reiterate my solidarity with the Palestinian people and join in with the millions of others in calling for an immediate ceasefire. I, alongside probably many of the people listening to this, was one of the 500,000 people that marched last Saturday in London. And I just want to encourage anyone listening who hasn't already to get along to these local demonstrations being held all around the world and to organise in this struggle in whatever way you're able to. If you're in London and you're hesitant about attending these demos for whatever reason, please don't be. If you are worried about reports from figures such as Suella Braveman, who called the last demo a hate march, don't believe her, she's talking rubbish. These demos are safe, they are well organised, and they are welcoming to people of all walks of life. One aspect of Saturday's demonstration that I was particularly moved by was the words of Barnaby Rain, who led a speech in Waterloo Station as part of a sit-in organised by Sisters Uncut. So I've included audio from that here. Arasami Burton is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at American University. His new book, Tip of the Spear, Black Radicalism, Prison Repression and the Long Attica Revolt, documents the criminalised and incarcerated black radical tradition which has and continues to face anti-insurgent warfare from the US state. Specifically, Arasami's book looks at this process through the lens of a series of prison rebellions in the New York prison system throughout the 1970s. We discuss the abolitionist, anti-imperialist and internationalist politics at the heart of these rebellions, as well as how, in response to these revolts, medicine and psychiatry were deployed by the state as weapons to eliminate black resistance within and beyond prison walls. Before we get to that discussion, I'd just like to say, as usual, 
thank you to everyone who supports the podcast. Thank you to the people that have signed up for monthly donations. You are amazing and it makes this work so much easier. If you would like to support the podcast and you haven't already done this, please do consider using the link in the show notes to go and sign up for a one, three or £10 donation per month. In November, I'll be announcing the books giveaway. So everyone who signs up for the middle and top tier will receive a book. And I'm also hoping to include things for the top tier, like follow on questions for guests and eventually merch as well. Because, you know, who doesn't love merch? If, however, you don't want to do this, but you would like to support the podcast in other ways, you could give this episode a five-star review on Apple or Spotify, or perhaps more importantly, you could share this episode with people you think might enjoy it. So with all that said, we'll now move on to the conversation with our Asami Burton. As I mentioned, um, I'd really like to discuss the function of the prison in a capitalist economy and how these developed in response to black liberation struggles throughout the 20th century um, with a kind of specific focus for this conversation on forms of medical or biopolitical power that developed as part of this process. We're obviously going to do this by discussing the focus of your book, Tip of the Spear, which is the long Attica revolt. There's a lot to discuss. There's a lot I want to ask you about. But to start off, I thought we could maybe do some kind of ground clearing and just kind of set up some of the terms and the foundations for the work you've done uh, in your research. So could you start by introducing people to the Long Attica Revolt? What events we're referring to when we're talking about that? And maybe also gesture towards the events that you've included in your analysis that have been omitted or underplayed by other records of the history by the state or by other scholars? Sure, thank you. Well, the overarching project of the book is to theorize and narrate the prison as a domain of hidden warfare um, and to take the prison out of narratives and discourses of criminal justice, which I argue obscure more than they reveal, and instead to show that the prison is more of of a dynamic and flexible, constantly reforming technology of counter-revolution that actually masquerades as an objective apolitical crime control apparatus. And so, yeah, war, the book is about war and violence and it's divided into two halves. The first half is what you just asked me about, the long Attica revolt. And the second half is called uh, prison pacification, which is about the sort of constant mutation of the prison in response to black radicalism. The Long Attic Revolt is a name I gave to this struggle, um, which is really an intervention into the story of the Attica Rebellion, uh, and in fact, an intervention into the production of historiography itself. So, you know, Attica is a prison in Western New York, and it's one of the most famous prisons in the world because of a rebellion that erupted within the prison between September 9th and September 13th, 1971. And the story about that rebellion has been told many times. And it's, it's uh, it, you know, the, there's several features of the way the story tends to be told. The, the, the rebellion 
is constrained to that one single prison. People have tended not to look at what was going on elsewhere. And also geographically, I mean, uh, temporally constrained to the sort of four days during which incarcerated people held control of the prison. And it's sort of like politically and discursively, ideologically constrained by a narrow reading of the demands that only focus on incarcerated people's desires for improved prison conditions. And in doing so, in only focusing on these kind of reformist demands, they've truncated a much uh, more audacious and capacious set of sort of revolutionary aspirations, narrative strategies that were being that were being asserted and pursued through this struggle. So the Long Attica Revolt is actually looking at a protracted series of rebellions that traversed multiple carceral sites. I'm really focusing on New York, but there's a there's a national and international component to this, right? It traversed multiple carceral sites. It had uh, revolutionary and anti-colonial and abolitionist aspirations, right? So it's not just about transforming the conditions in a specific prison, in a specific prison, but really about transforming the world. Yeah. So it's geographically distended. It's temporally distended and it's ideological, ideologically capacious. And so, you know, the first, the, the first part of the book, The Long Attica Revolt, is divided into three chapters. Each chapter looks at a different site of this revolt. So the first chapter is about the New York City Jail Rebellion of 1970, which was a massive rebellion of uh, uh, incarcerated people, many of whom had not been convicted of any crimes. And it really tries to identify and narrate their strategies and tactics and to show that they were thinking about and enacting a form of revolutionary warfare at the site of the prison. The second chapter is about the Auburn Rebellion, which has often been noted to be a precursor to Attica, but it it hasn't been effectively studied, in in my opinion, in my view. Uh, And so I show that this was, in fact, a distended rebellion that lasted over the over a period of eight months in just this one prison, and that it had not only a physical aspect in the sense of incarcerated people refusing to be sort of brutalized and incapacitated by prison authorities, but it also had a narrative domain domain that that the people who led that rebellion were self-consciously engaged in a narrative contest, resisting the state's attempt to criminalize their struggle by using the limited means at their disposal to circulate sort of kind of narratives of their own struggle. Um, and then I also show that there was like an affective and an epistemic domain of this war where ultimately they were attempting to preserve and realize new forms of sort of like intimacy and hum- humanity and human being that in fact, violence and war and domination were not at the core of their aspirations, but the, the core of their aspirations was 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 something much more uh, revolutionary, right? In 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 multiple senses of that term. 
And then in Attica, the third the, the third chapter entitled Attica is I re-narrate this this story that has been told multiple, multiple times and really show that there's an entire domain of strategic and revolutionary struggle that happened in Attica um, that has been totally erased from the narrative. Um, and I try to bring that to light, showing how they, um, you know, sort of like worked through different kinds of contradictions that emerged in the course of their struggle, showing um, how they were thinking about and engaging with violence and, and showing the internationalism of the rebellion, right? De- you know, uh, sort of the, the rebellion has been domesticated and, and this entire sort of um, international component right, uh, has been effaced. So sort of bringing that to the fore as well. Yeah. And I think maybe our conversation might mirror that kind of two-half structure in that I'm going to ask you first about um, the organising that took place in these prisons, uh, slightly focusing on Attica, and then maybe in the second half, focus more on the the way in which the state kind of mutates as part of this process. Before we do that, though, I would like to just kind of ask you to just speak a little bit more about warfare, understanding what this history is and what this live struggle is as warfare. What does it mean to understand the prisons and I guess the structures of the state that they are embedded within as engaged in warfare? I mean, what what does that do to the way we think about ourselves as political subjects, um, people in struggle? Because I think it's quite a leap for perhaps some people. So the only way that I know how to answer that question effectively is first to foreground that this book does not grow out of a sort of body of academic scholarship, at least not initially. That's not that that was not the impetus for me writing this book, like this idea that there is a, a gap in the literature or 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 a sort of conversation that's happening among academics that prompted this, right? The genesis of the book actually comes from an internal Black radical demand for a more rigorous analysis of the prison movement, right? And uh, essentially, a, a mentor of mine who I interviewed as the first interviews for the book asked me to sort of pursue this question of, can is there a way to elaborate to use the tools of academia to elaborate black revolutionary politics within the context of the prison. And in fact, during that conversation, Eddie Ellis, who, who is the person who I'm, I'm talking about, who gave me this assignment, never explicitly said, you know, the black radical analysis of sort of political life in the Western sphere for, for black people is war. He didn't say that, but I, I had to sort of figure that out. And it became clear to me upon deeper research that in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, right, the moment that is the sort of pivot that launches the sort of year after year growth of the prison system in the U.S., so the sort of pivot point for what we popularly understand to be mass incarceration, that war as an analytic for what was taking place in and through prisons was sort of pervasive in the archives, right? In both 
sort of black radical discourses of what was unfolding and in sort of state narratives, although not the ones that are typically publicly circulated. Um, so in other words, war is not something that I just made up and imposed on this story because I thought that it would be a sort of useful academic analytic. To the contrary, war was the sort of operative paradigm driving the struggle for the people who were engaged in the struggle on both sides, right? So what it does in terms of how it changes our analysis or our understandings of ourselves is that uh, it necessitates thinking about foregrounding strategy, foregrounding tactics, understanding that people who are engaged in liberation struggles are facing uh, opponents who are not bound by law. And, and what does that mean? I mean, I think we know that on some level, but what does it mean to center that kind of analysis? What does it do for how we think about violence, right? About political violence from below, right? So these are questions that I don't profess to know the answers to uh, necessarily. Um, but but what, so what I tried to do in the book is to, to simply show, to excavate this intentionally suppressed history of struggle and to try to point out the the ways that that people struggled around around these questions and i guess if we shift now maybe to some of the kind of more descriptive kind of historical aspects of uh, what we're going to talk about you describe how the the longaka revolt emerged in a kind of dialectical process in response to the US government's domestic war that began in part outside of the prison walls. So you talk about the the state's kind of conscious targeting, assassination, imprisonment of black radicals and, and other kind of left radicals throughout the 60s. Um, could you talk a little bit about what that process looked like and, and how it created some of the conditions for the prison organizing rebellion that we're talking about? Sure. Um, so, I mean, Part of what we're dealing with here is that by the late 1960s, in terms of the historical development of the sort of black liberation struggle broadly conceived, we're seeing the exhaustion of the civil rights framework and the increasing adoption of anti-colonial modes of analysis, which also include revolutionary warfare as a mode of sort of political engagement, right? So so people are reading Fanon, right? They're reading Robert F. Williams. They're reading Kwame Nkrumah's book on revolutionary warfare. They're reading Che Guevara's book on revolutionary warfare. Those books are being quoted, excerpted, discussed, rethought in the pages of the sort of underground left press, the Black Panther, Palante, um, and many other uh, many other journals and periodicals. Um, and so, you know, we can have a conversation about that strategy, but that that was the strategy, right? And the state was developing at the same time new methods or renewed methods of counterinsurgency employed domestically. So this included, both hard and soft forms of 
power, which is to say co-optation uh, and channeling through, you know, um, funding, you know, less combative strands of politics through uh, foundations, as well as different forms of um, violent state repression, including, as you mentioned, assassination, um, also frame-ups, political frame-ups, um, bad jacketing people, right, labeling them snitches or laboring, labeling them conspirators or traitors, um, and different forms of forced exile. And a major part of this was, of course, um, the FBI's counterintelligence program, uh, which was essentially a domestic counterinsurgency program that had existed since the 1950s to target the Communist Party, but by 1967 was sort of renovated and um, um, it, it became explicitly focused on the Black liberation struggle uh, for much of it. Mo most of its resources were directed in that arena. And, and especially against the Panthers. And so you see an increasing number of organizers and theorists who are becoming incarcerated as a result of their, their political activity. Um, and so now these people are behind the walls and they're behind the walls with a constellation of other kinds of people who are primed to engage in revolutionary activity, including people who have been members of sort of criminal organizations, people who have been members of gangs um, or organized street formations, uh, people who had military experience and combat training. And so the prison is being used as a strategy to contain movements outside the walls but they really didn't have a strategy or even a sense that they would need to intensify their technologies of control within the walls. And so this assembly of different kinds of people began to develop new forms of organization um, behind the walls. And so those are the sort of broad conditions that led to the emergence of these forms of rebellion. And then, of course, there was a response to this by the state as well. And, you know, so I try to sort of um, narrate this back and forth, this push and pull, this dynamic, you know, that, that's characteristic of the of war. Yeah. Could you describe what that organizing, uh, what that organizing looked like in the prisons? Because um, obviously it's a different terrain. Um, I'd be really interested to hear you talk about the ways in which the intellectuals and revolutionaries that were imprisoned adapted to that terrain and, and what that looked like on a, on a kind of granular um, community level? Ultimately, I think it's the same as anywhere else. Um, it's just that the methods of control are more immediate. I mean, they're just, they're just more immediately immersed within a repressive environment in which their bodies minds, their speech and knowledge are suppressed and repressed and surveilled. Um, and so it just means that they have to be more conscious of uh, questions of security, informational security. They have to be very conscious of discipline, that they have to rely on themselves in a way that people outside the wall don't necessarily have to because it's assumed that they have 
some freedom of motion where they can talk to other people, right? And so, you know, there's and there's several different kinds of formations. There's there's very hierarchical, top-down uh, organizations that are designed according to a kind of a, a pyramid structure. And and these kinds of hierarchical organizations are, I think, well suited for conditions of war because you need a command structure. At least that's the thinking, right? And then you also have more anarchistic formations that that are, are uh less hierarchical, more horizontal, uh, where people can kind of move in and out. Um and there's no there's no real membership even in some of these organizations. There's just kind of ideas that circulate. But one particular and and then you have some sort of like prison based formations of the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army, Palante, I mean uh, the Young Lords organizations that we would would know about. And then you have these sort of new organizations that are indigenous to the prison system. So one that I talk about in the book is um, the Prisoners Liberation Front, which was formed by a very interesting figure um, named Casper Baker Gary, who wrote this extraordinarily detailed um, manual for organizing in prisons. And ultimately, it was a plan for organizing across different prisons and different institutions of confinement, including mental institutions. And so much of that document was about informational security, the need to develop secret codes, so the thinking of cryptography. But again, none of this is particularly unique to the prison, which is actually the point, because of what a lot of these people, the revolutionaries and, and, and sort of activists that I'm talking about, what they were saying was that the prison's intensified form of what's happening outside the walls. And so everything that we're doing in here, you know, all, all of the same contradictions and challenges that we're dealing with inside um, need to be thought through uh, in other spaces of struggle. Yeah, I was going to ask you this later, actually, but I think it might make sense to us now. Just what you're saying there about the manual that uh, from the Prisoners Liberation Front and um, the reference to psychiatric institutions. Did these organizations, I mean, how did they see themselves in relation to something like the um, anti-psychiatry movement uh, and the kind of uh, deinstitutionalization movement? Because I was thinking, as I was reading your book about the, um, you have like the dialectics of liberation conference in London a couple of years before Attica where Kwame Tori talks alongside R.D. Lang and other kind of anti-psychiatrists. Is, is that something that kind of shows up in in the the writing and the conversations and the and the work that these uh, militants were doing? You know, I looked for I looked for that because it felt. I mean, it definitely feels relevant. It feels like there are a lot of parallels. I didn't hear. I didn't see a lot of writing about like psychiatry as a discipline on the side of the rebels who are critiquing this carceral structure. And I also, I did a little bit of looking and a little bit of digging through the um, sort of like some of the left periodicals that were specifically, you know, that grew out of the anti-psychiatry movement to see to what extent they were talking about prisons. And I didn't do that or talking about prisons in, in this particular way, talking about war, really, domestic war. And I didn't I didn't do an exhaustive search there, but uh, I didn't find too much. So 
I think there's a connection there, and, and that might just be one of the places that I didn't exhaust the resources to, to sort of answer the question. But of course, you know, Casper and many others were, uh, they did pass through prisons and sort of like theatric prisons where they were experimented on and, and or were deemed uh, insane or in other, in, in, or defective in other ways. And so they did develop an organic critique of psychiatry as a mode of domination in the way that it was being deployed behind the wall. So I think it's there, but in terms of explicitly linking um, the struggle against prisons more broadly to the struggle against psychiatric institutions, I didn't see too much. And in fact, Casper's uh, manual is one of the few places where you do see it a little bit in the sense that he recognized the need to include organizing within, you know, these sort of carceral medical institutions. And and probably because by that time he had already been institutionalized in one of them. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I guess, could you maybe explain how this organizing led to some of these revolts and instances where incarcerated people were able to overthrow and kind of institute, um, I guess, kind of autonomous zones or kind of free zones or, or, or their own kind of... Um, kind of democratic structures within prisons. I mean, may, maybe we could focus on Attica, but I think it would also be good to kind of talk about the, the other kind of instances you talk about in the book. But um, yeah, how how did these very disciplined forms of organization allow prisoners to kind of fully capture these institutions, um, if only for on the face of it, perhaps in some ways brief moments, but um, mm-hmm. still very, you know, I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the question of how did they take control, they, they they just did. You know, I mean, the prison guards are in the minority. And like I said, you know, the prisons just have to receive the people who are given to them, right? So it's the courts that are employing this counterinsurgency method of like just criminalizing all of these people who otherwise would be out in the streets, destabilizing things, right? The prisons just have to absorb these people. And they weren't given any resources initially to develop new methods of maintaining control. So really all they had was was racism and brutality to try to maintain order in the prison. But of course, repression breeds resistance. And so after the rebellions happen, the state tries to say that the rebellions are the, are the result of a technical problem, right? Which, of course, will not be a surprise to your, your listeners, right? The technical problem was overcrowding. We just need, we need more prison. You know, the incarcerated people are rebelling because we're not treating them right, which, of course, is partially true. But the fact that they were being mistreated does not explain the ways that these rebellions unfolded because they were intensely politicized, intensely organized. Um, and that's a result of their own, you know, self-activity, their own self-organization, their own political education, which they had been doing to prepare themselves to engage in a struggle that had greater meaning than just, you know, let's tear up the institution. 
And so if you read the rebellion as a discourse, if you read these rebellions as a discourse, taking seriously what Martin Luther King Jr. said, that the riot is the language of the unheard, if we train ourselves to, to listen to and read this language, then we can uncover all of these quite amazing practices of liberation struggle that unfold in the rebellion as a kind of praxis of liberation. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, and, and it's not something that, I think that it really speaks to, you know, the brilliance of everyday people who are able to sort of create knowledge and create meaning as they engage in struggle. And so that, that was sort of the, that's sort of the goal of the first half of the book is to really show all of the different kinds of democratic practices around, you know, shared practices of knowledge production, thinking about, okay, what forms of, how do we want to govern these rebellions? How do we want to defend ourselves? What methods of security do we want to develop? Different practices of intimacy, of care work, different specific ways of of treating um, hostages and people over whom you have control. All of these things were carefully discussed and deliberated over and implemented in ways that I think that I personally find really uh, inspiring. And I think that they can in many ways serve as a template for people who are engaged in different kinds of organizing today. Yeah, definitely. Um, could you maybe describe some of those practices and, and how things were organized during the rebellion and, and kind of what challenges the revolt addressed and overcame and how they kind of organized themselves as, as they were kind of in control of the prison? I mean, I'm especially interested, I think this might come up later in the conversation about what you're saying there about kind of new forms of subjectivity, new forms of care work that kind of stand in amazing contrast to some of the other forms of quote unquote care or, or medicalized work that we'll talk about later. Could could you just explain for people sort of um, what the militants did, how they organized themselves, how, how they changed things? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, when they seized Attica prison, for instance, you know, they transformed it into what George Jackson, who was an uh, imprisoned intellectual and revolutionary in California, what he called the, the Black Commune, which is really a, an autonomous zone. So they basically seized control of a major portion of Attica prison, which was believed to be riot proof, and they destroyed its infrastructure, um, just totally demolished it in various ways. And then there was this moment where the rebellion could have just imploded on itself, but instead they created this amazing society, which didn't last for very long, but was, you know, highly organized. And so they, they organized all of their food and create a, you know, a system for feeding 1300 people, um, over the course of four days, they, uh, elected Spokesmen, they were very specific around not calling them leaders, but rather just spokesmen of of the Attica commune. And they 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 organized that by uh, holding elections according to blocks, different geographical areas of the prison. And so each block voted on someone to represent them. Um, and those people were chosen based on their 
the respect they had among the population, you know. So some observers who were later brought in um, interrogated the political structure of Attica and called it a true democracy. And others said it was more democratic than, than the world outside the wall. So they had to think about questions of governance. Um, they voted on a security squad, um, which not only patrolled their territory, the liberated territory, but also, and more importantly, I would argue, helped to maintain the integrity of the revolt, right? To maintain, to ensure that the rebels themselves were safe and that no one was taking advantage of each other, right? And so they're thinking about, okay, how do we, you know, it's a prefigurative kind of mode of struggle where they're enacting the kind of abolitionist world that they are fighting for outside the prison walls. And so it's really interesting that this, I argue, is actually an example of prison abolition happening on a geographically and temporally limited scale. And it happens inside the prison itself, right? And so just thinking about that contradiction and, and trying to show, trying to demonstrate the, that, that these practices are, that are effective, that there's, a, that there's a blueprint, I think, for, for abolitionist politics and for this, this kind of struggle. Yeah, you also write about the, the kind of tension between uh, a set of, I guess, formal demands about like, prisoners' rights and, and kind of more immediate things like that, and then a broader abolitionist, anti-capitalist, internationalist political horizon. And I mean, what, to what degree was that attention within the movement and within the militants themselves? And to what degree is this more of a struggle about how we document this history, how we narrate this struggle? I think it's three different struggles. One is, let's call it reform and revolution, right? That's a, tendency, that's a tension within the movement. Two, it's a tension between different fractions of the movement and the state, because the state, you know, after Attica, the state implements a series of reforms, but they strategically select those demands that can be easily co-opted. And so it's an internal struggle within the movement, um, but it's an internal struggle that is seized upon by counterinsurgency actors within the state as a way to pacify the rebellion overall. So it's a struggle, you know, in that way. And then a third layer is the narrative struggle among those who write about this kind of thing, people like me, who encounter the fact that on the surface of the state archive, there's a particular way um, that we're encouraged to tell the story. And that way is, you know, the kind of domesticated version of Attica that I'm writing against. But in order to sort of cover what I'm talking about, this war that I'm talking about, one has to have a different relationship to the state archive, you know, and I call it archival war uh, and, and understanding that by writing about this story, we're actually engaging in the narrative contest that was unfolding and certain versions of the story are more accessible to us. For a reason, because people, you know, very powerful people wanted certain things to be visible and certain things to be invisible. Um, and so I think this is part of why we don't know about the sort of more revolutionary demands, because the state didn't 
think they were important and wanted to sort of negate them, right? Both at, in in the historical present as these events were unfolding, but also for posterity. Yeah, another uh, aspect of the struggle that has been made invisible that you're that you're you're writing against is the internationalist aspect of of what happened. I mean, could you talk about how the revolutionaries kind of saw themselves in relation to internationalist struggles, um, I guess broader kind of decolonial struggles that were happening in parallel and uh, in, throughout the same period. And um, I guess also some of the things you write about, about directly in communication or trying to organize things like, um, uh, what would the word be, escape or kind of safe, safe refuge to countries um, in, I suppose at the time would be called the kind of third world. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, you know, part of why the civil rights framework falls out of prominence within the Black liberation struggle and part of why anti-colonial modes of analysis were adopted is because of the anti-colonial movements that were unfolding throughout the third world that inspire, that were inspiring to people in the U.S., right? So the Vietnamese, you know, the struggle, the, the Palestinian struggle against Zionism, right? Uh, and this is shortly after 1967, which is when Israel occupied, you know, more of historic Palestine as well as Syria and uh, uh, Jordan. And, and this is really the moment when Black people in the U.S. increasingly are developing sort of, a, you know, understanding the relationship between Zionism, colonialism, and white supremacy. And then you've got struggles against Portuguese colonial rule in uh, Mozambique, in Angola, in Guinea-Bissau. Um, and you've got struggles in Latin America, which are increasingly adopting forms of urban guerrilla warfare. I'm thinking specifically about the Tupamaros. And these things, again, are covered in the pages of the Black Panther. These movements are covered in the Black Panther. They're covered in other underground periodicals. And so people are informed about these things. Um, and they, they're starting to think about their struggle in this way. So they were internationalists. And then, you know, many of the Panthers, the New York Panthers, had done time in New York prisons with the people who were engaged in these rebellions. And some of the Panthers were in these rebellions. And some of them had gone overseas as as part of Panther delegations and, and met members of sort of third world liberation groups. Others had escaped capture and fled often on hijacked planes to third world countries where they were granted asylum, right? The, the Black Panther Party had an international section which was based in Algeria and which was made up mostly of uh, fugitives who, you know, fled either to Cuba or to Algeria. Um, so there was this sense of possibility uh, in terms of their internationalism. And so one of the demands that the rebels assert in Attica was transportation to a non-imperialist country. And this is one of those demands that the state does not take seriously at all. Um, but other movement, other people in the movement did. And, um, you know, evidence points to the fact that they actually got permission from several countries, including Algeria, to transport 
the members of the rebellion, participants in the rebellion who wanted to leave the U.S. and go to another country. Now, this never happened, but it's significant because, again, it speaks to the embeddedness of the anti-prison struggle within a larger struggle against colonialism. And it shows that members of other third world liberation movements recognized the Black struggle in the U.S. and the prison movement in particular as a legitimate aspect of this global struggle against against empire and against colonialism. And and then there's evidence of communication, right? Direct communication between people in the US prison movement and you know delegations of representing third world movements in, in Cuba and in Vietnam. Um, and so part of what I just tried to do is is to sort of piece all of this together and and demonstrate that this is part of a broader context of sort of abolitionist internationalism. I want to ask you about the, the violent repression of the Atco uprising. And as I sort of alluded to in our correspondence before talking, I, I wasn't quite sure how to go about this. And I was kind of sensitive to the problematics of reproducing descriptions or representations of the kind of spectacle of racialized violence, especially with regard to the analysis, you know, you provide in the book about the kind of psychosexual dimension to that which is very prevalent and in thinking about how to ask you about this aspect of what happened I I was thinking about the way in which you well one of the ways in which you researched this book which was the the huge number of interviews you engaged with some of whom people kind of affected by this violence and I guess I just wanted to ask you kind of how how did you approach documenting this violence How, how should we kind of go about talking about it because obviously it's important right it's like a very important piece of history it's a very important thing that we should know about but how how should we engage with that history in a way that doesn't kind of reproduce that violence I suppose yeah thank you yeah I mean the book is about violence and it's it's really about concentric circles of violence almost like Dante's Inferno you know violence within violence within violence right so there's the violence of the condition of being black in the United States. And then there's the violence of being incarcerated amidst that condition. And then there's the counter violence, as I call it, enacted by these incarcerated and internally colonized people. And so there I'm trying to write against the tendency to condemn political violence from below out of hand or to present it as extremism as the state wants us to do or as ill-conceived and immature. Right. Simply because simply because, you know, the movement wasn't successful. Some people then use that as a way to just sort of demonize that method, which I was, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I was again, I'm against that. And rather, instead, I'm trying to show that these rebels were experimenting with the strategic use of counterviolence to achieve their political goals and showing how that was actually like a, a, a rational decision. Right. But then there's the violence, the violent responses to counterviolence. So one of the things I'm trying to do is to just be clear about the different ways in which violence is operating in the struggle um, and the different kinds of violence that are being inflicted. Right. Physical, psychological, narrative, epistemic, psychiatric, ontological. These are all the different kinds of violence that I talk about in the book. Right. And the other challenge was to try to ensure that 
I was never including depictions of violence for own sake. There's, there's a lot of texts out there where, you know, well, let me just put it this way, right? I, I was always trying to make sure that I analyzed the meaning and function of violence in different circumstances. And, and that descriptions of violence were meant to teach us something about the politics, not just to create, as you say, a spectacle of black suffering for, for its own sake. Um, and I don't know if I was fully successful or if one could be fully successful in that regard in, in trying to always theorize the meaning of violence as it's being deployed in given situations in a book. But but that was my intent. Um, and I also tried to connect the spectacular to the mundane, right? Because because Attica is such a powerful example of the spectacle of violence, right? The, the state unleashed a assault force into the prison who indiscriminately killed 39 people, uh, 29 of the rebels and 10 of their own guards. So that's a whole story. And then there's a protracted period of, of torture afterwards, much of which was sexual in nature. And that's really the focus. Um, my focus in, in, in the book or in that particular chapter about the massacre of is the nature of the sexual violence. And the point there, and I don't know how successful I was, but the point there was trying to shine a light on on this figure of the white man, right? Who in many ways is the figure that I talk about that governs war, that initiated this war and that governs it. Um, and part of what I was trying to examine in that chapter is is the sexual nature of, of of racial and political repression, right? And and the, the the sexual nature of the way that white men attempt to dominate black men, uh, and the ways in which assertions of black political autonomy and assertions of black masculine humanity are read by the white man as an attack on his manhood because of the way that sort of colonial patriarchy and hegemonic white masculinity operates as a kind of zero-sum game where their manhood always is imagined and enacted at the expense of any other kinds of, of manhood or masculinity. And so the way that they respond to that kind of hegemony being challenged is through sexual violence, is through attempts to, if you think about it through their sort of perverse logic, attempts to emasculate their opponents sexually uh, as a way to shore up and stabilize their own sense of themselves as men. And so in this way, you know, the book is about I mean, the chapter is about sexual violence against these rebels, but it's really about the fragility of white manhood and the way that it's founded upon this sort of uh, systemic, sexualized, anti-black violence. Yeah. I guess I also wanted to ask, and, and this kind of maybe be the focus of maybe the kind of final portion of this conversation, um, is the way in which that kind of explicit sexual violence informs a huge amount of organizing response, research, development of weapons, 
by the state. Um, sadly, I don't think we'll have time to get into all of the kind of uh, the, the reformist counterinsurgency methods that you describe in the book mm-hmm. that you break down into four: expansion, humanization, diversification, programmification. Um, but with the time we have left, I, I would like to ask you about the way in which psychiatric and medical quote unquote professionals were enlisted in the development of these weapons and the, and the, and the use of these weapons. Um, and I suppose there's a few different aspects of that. And there's a few different ways to that. One way I thought might be a helpful way to set it up is to ask you um, how ideas of care were deployed to explain and justify the expansion and uh, mutation of prison as a form of technology. So one of the things that happens after Attica is that the the sort of administrators of this carceral war start to understand that they need to be more strategic in how they manage this population that they're now forced to deal with um, behind prison walls. And part of how they do that is through a kind of biopolitical um, strategy. And so one of the things that's really interesting, Attica happens in 1971. It's at this precise moment that you begin to see an increasing number of people with PhDs being incorporated into the prison in different kinds of ways. So you see an increasing number of people with psychology, psychiatry, the psychology PhDs, psychiatry, MDs, more medical doctors. What else? Um, yeah, forensic psychiatry, psychology, yeah, some anthropology also, uh, you know, and then like public administration and other kinds of things. Um, and one of the things they start doing is they, they try to uh, develop new instruments for assessing the sort of psychological profile of the people whom they have control. And the point there is to try to be more strategic about how this population is distributed across various prisons in in the system. And so to think more systemically about rebellion and how to prevent it from even growing by creating more advantageous combinations of people behind prison walls, whereas before, you know, it was a very haphazard method. They had a very haphazard method of determining who would end up where. Um, After Attica, they start to, to be strategic in terms of, okay, let's keep people with different sentence lengths in prisons, right? Like, let's not just confine all people who have life imprisonment terms into one prison. Why? Because the idea for them was that people who had life in prison have less to lose. Um, And so if you put if you if you fill a prison with people who have nothing to lose, they're more likely to to rebel um, and do any number of other things. But if we if we include people who are going to get out in a year or two who would be less likely to risk that opportunity to get out by rebelling, then we can sort of assert greater control over people individually and collectively. So that's what I mean by this kind of biopolitical way of thinking about things. Um, And this connects to the question of psychiatry, because 
New York developed clearinghouse for profiling people. Now, this is really interesting because I, the book is about New York, um, but you know the New York prison system and the California prison system have historically been seen as on the cutting edge of like carceral strategy and technology policy, whatever you want to call it. And both New York and California, and I assume other places, although I, you know, I haven't done enough research in in how other states de- dealt with this, but both New York and California, um, they had an experimental mental institution slash pr- that was also a prison through which a portion of their population came through temporarily in order to be profiled and tested with the idea that this profile system would then be used to uh, figure out how to manage and distribute the whole population. So New York had uh, what was initially called the Dannemora State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, which was later in 1972 rebranded as ACTEC, the Adirondack Correctional Treatment Center. And California had Vacaville Correctional Facility. And both of these prisons served the same function. And in fact, I found in, in an archival document that the rebranded ACTEC was understood to be uh, New York's version of Vacaville, right? So there was an explicit connection there. It's interesting because both of these, well, Vacaville, it's been documented that the CIA was violating its charter by operating in Vacaville. To doing MK Ultra experiments on unwitting, using prisoners as guinea pigs to test all kinds of stuff. The CIA admitted that in 1977 after being forced to. I have uncovered the almost certitude that the CIA, well, actually, I think, let's see. Yeah, I'll say almost. I've, I've uncovered the almost certitude that the CIA was 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 using different sort of psychologists and psychiatrists to experiment on black radicals and revolutionary and other people in New York prisons. So it's a fact it's a fact that these experiments were happening and I document that exhaustively. You know, whether or not the CIA was involved uh, directly, I think you know, that's I don't think I've proven that with certitude, although in some ways it doesn't really matter because this was all unfolding within this broader context in which these kinds of experiments um, were indeed happening. And part of what, and I can talk more about the experiments if you want to, but part of what the state was interested in explicitly was using uh, incarcerated people as guinea pigs um, to develop control technologies that could then be used against the broader population. They're really explicit about this, right? So it's not just about how to control prisoners. It's like, oh, how do we use prisoners as test subjects to figure out how to control people outside the walls, which I think is really important. Yeah. I mean, there's two thoughts I have there. I mean, one is, you know, I think it's really interesting the way that, I guess in the same way that we're encouraged to think of prisons and sites of incarceration as as kind of peripheral, as like away from the center of things, the kind of deployment of psychiatry, the deployment of medical practice and research in this way, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it could be easy to say that that is 
also peripheral, but mm. really, I, I really don't think that's the case. And I think it's really important to place things like this at the center of these disciplines and say, the fact that these disciplines have done this and we're using this way is, is, is central to understanding what they are. And so that's, that's one thought I had just as you were speaking there, and it's not really a question. So I might just kind of respond to what you're saying about this dynamic of, um, you know, what they perfect in the prisons and test out in the prisons, they deploy outside. And this kind of mm-hmm. false dichotomy of struggle inside and struggle outside. Um, and and I guess like, you know, there's a huge amount of effort and sort of propaganda and et cetera, et cetera, in encouraging people to see things that way. Mm-hmm. Um, we obviously both know that's not the case. I mean, again, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but I guess the question is, I mean, what do you make of that dynamic? I mean, how, how do you think that's played out in the in the more kind of general formation of um, the struggle? I mean, do you think that's something that we've, we, we account for enough? Right. Well, you know, I think I say in the book that I, we need to understand the prison as a central site of counterinsurgency research and development, period, full stop, right? So, you know, I talk about this guy, Donald Forgaze, in the book, who was a professor of psychology at the University of Vermont, and he got a uh, Department of Health, Education, and Welfare grant to do research on the Dannemora State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. And he's one of the people who helped facilitate its rebranding to ACTEC and, and making it more like Vacaville. You know, he got his PhD in psychology at Cornell University when the Human Ecology Fund was operational there. The Human Ecology Fund was, of course, a CIA front organization that facilitated the, the the clandestine transfer of funds from the CIA and um, to Cornell to help nourish this, you know, mind control research. So he came out of that, Borges came out of that context, uh, and he's doing all kind of weird isolation and behavior modification experiments on students at the University of Vermont at the same time that he's doing it on incarcerated people in in New York and he never publishes anything that I have found about what he ends up doing with the research however a few years after or not even a few years like so he's doing this research from I think like 70 to 73 or 74 something like that but by 74, he's, he's giving lectures to the Air Force, uh, giving, giving lectures about how to help astronauts cope with long-term isolation as they fly to the moon or as they fly to Mars or wherever they're trying to send them. The implication there is that you know, this knowledge that was coercively extracted from incarcerated subjects is now being used to facilitate space travel. So there's other, you know, and they're testing all kinds of drugs. Some of the drugs they were testing on these people, like, you know, that's not my area, but 
I mean, the imp- I think they were testing all kinds of drugs on people that we that people use now, right? So a lot of the sort of technologies that we take for granted or or the methods, you know, were kind of prototyped coercively off off of uh, incarcerated people. And so that's why I think, yeah, no, we need to understand this as a central site of counterinsurgency knowledge production, central because it's geographically marginal and and sort of out of our public view. This is precisely why it's so central, because we don't think about them and because we tend not to, to feel like those inside of them are worthy of our of our sympathy. This is, this is precisely why they're so valuable to the state. Mm. You've been very generous with your time. So I think I might make this my final question. Um, and I suppose I want to return to the kind of glimpses of new kinds of subjectivity, new kinds of intimacies that, that we spoke about a bit earlier in these moments of kind of autonomy and, and um, kind of abolition, especially to contrast them with this other so-called practice of medicine, so-called practice of care, um, or or kind of, well, it's, like, I mean, it's ridiculous to call it care, but you kind of get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I put, you know, one way you, I think it's uh, Sylvia Winter's phrase, this searching or, or producing a, a, a new genre of human. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that's, it's a very moving aspect of the book. It's a very, um, just an important priority, I think, for anyone who's concerned with political struggle or, or making the world in any way better. Um, yeah. And I guess I want to ask you how we put that in context with all these other things that happen at the minute, because as I was reading your book and as we've been talking today, I mean, it's impossible to avoid the resonances between the things we're talking about and what's happening in Gaza, what's happening in the Atlanta forest and all these things. And so I suppose I want to ask you about um, the way in which the people you spoke to, the elders of this movement and, you know, people that did this work about how they relate to those questions of care and how they relate to that idea of a new subjectivity, a revolutionary subjectivity in in relation to care and caring for each other and and in how they relate to each other and, and maybe how that's something that we can uh, imagine and strive for in whatever kind of situation we 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 find ourselves in, in politically. Yeah, thank you. I mean, the goal of the the, the administrators of this war, um, this is a, a transgenerational war. The the goal of the administrators of this war, as it relates to to black people, is to produce a pacified subject really to produce a slave, someone whose independent will has been abolished, someone who's not only physically incapacitated, but someone who has been psychologically tamed and domesticated, a robot, an automaton, a kind of extension of the master's will, right? A slave. That's the that's the kind of subject that the, the administrators of this war are trying to produce through these different technologies of repression, which we've been talking about, including but not limited to mind control. That's what mind control is about, making people into slaves. Um, the, the, the rebels, the protagonists of this struggle that I'm talking about, 
they don't have a fully articulated version of the subject that they're trying to produce, right? Their immediate goal is to eliminate the conditions of sort of normalized genocide under which Black people in the West uh, under modernity live. That's the immediate demand, okay? And these rebellions represent these moments in which they're able to do that on a limited scale. These moments where they're able to create breathing room for themselves. These moments where they're able to overthrow the regime of domination. And in those moments, then we can begin to see them narrating the emergence of this new kind of humanism through their practices, you know. And they talk about it, they reflect on it using their imperfect language, but I think the best place to look is to actually look at their deeds, look at what they do. And so part of what I was trying to do in the book is to um, narrate these deeds and to theorize them and to show that this is the process of revolution in motion, uh, that this is the form of what Fanon would call radical mutation and to show its unfolding, and to show the rational, exuberant, erotic, creative aspects of this process of becoming without trying to impose any kind of pre-existing frameworks on it. And so I try to show this in various places, you know, I try to talk about how they, you know, develop practices of communing with the stars, they develop you know, practices of intimacy. I, I talk, talk about how they narrated what it actually felt like at an embodied level to be a part of this revolt and how it totally obliterates liberal Western conceptions of, of, the, of the bounded individual. individual. You know, they talk about how the rebellion got inside of them, how, how they began to feel inseparable from each other, how they began to feel inseparable from the land and the stars, um, and that this is a form of mutation. Um, and, and that this is actually the this is actually a key aspect of the goal of any kind of revolutionary project. Then you have people like Casper Baker Gary, who on the one hand, writes a document, a different document, not the Prisoner's Liberation Manual, a different document called Petitions for Certificates Extraordinary. That's the name of this document he writes. On the one hand, is a indictment of, it's a lot of things, including an indictment and, and uh, an indictment of the profound forms of sexual violence that occurred in Attica. Um, but it's also a kind of treaty on the, the need for human beings to evolve and to think in ways that reject sort of like Western rationalism, right? And he's he's thinking through a totally different epistemology, which I call mad science. He's not thinking, he's not, he's not, he's not locked into sort of rational ways of narrating the human. And he's thinking on a cosmic scale. He's thinking about, you know, the emergence of the species Homo sapien, you know, and 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 thinking about how race is really a betrayal, a violation of the human project, and how humans have the the duty 
to mutate into something more. So, so very in line with what Winter and Fanon were talking about in terms of this emergence of this new kind of humanism. And so I don't profess to know the, the full content of it. And I don't think the people who engage in the struggle understand or understood the full content of it. But they understood that they were changing and were actively trying to channel that change into productive and sort of like revolutionary direction. That, that was their project. So I tried to show that happen. And it's just it's something that I find very, very inspiring. Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Arasami for such a great conversation. Once again, if you'd like to support Red Medicine, please consider signing up for a donation, giving the show five stars on Apple or Spotify, or sharing this episode with people you think might enjoy it.